You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. And that music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter on a happy new year day. But it's not really a, quite nice out. It's cold. Not, not a bright, nice. not not a bright, beautiful, sunny day in the Sacramento Valley. Although no. I do see a I do see a break in the clouds to the west. We got a fair bit of rain overnight. I see an inch or so in a lot of different places. It was quite variable. If you go to the different sites that tell you how much rainfall people got, it was all over the place. But we got I would say an inch here in Solano County on our side of Dixon and temperature right now is 46 degrees on January 3rd, 2024, as we prepare this broadcast for January 4th, 2024, 46 degrees today, going up to a high of 54 degrees, dropping down tonight with patchy fog to 37. This storm was a lot colder than the last storm. That's putting it mildly. Uh, We barely broke 50 degrees yesterday while it was raining. And the last storm, we were above 55 most of the time into around 60 and on new year's day it was gorgeous here and above 60 degrees here all around the sacramento area a beautiful day but a little disconcerting to have it that warm in january well we dropped right back down this last storm was colder as i say we got about an inch of rain thursday the day of the broadcast will be mostly sunny with a high of about 55 which is fairly average for this time of year thursday night will be 37 with a slight chance of showers friday a slight chance of showers and mostly sunny going up to 56 friday night clear areas of frost but the low that they're anticipating is only 36 degrees so frost visible but nothing to be concerned about from a gardening standpoint saturday once again chance of showers 30 percent 51 degrees saturday night 35 degrees chance of showers sunday 51 degrees and sunny and then sunday night mostly clear with a low around 34 so likely to see some frost as well monday mostly sunny high near 49 got that high near 49 Yeah, and sunny. So that's some cold air pulling in behind this next little storm that's passing through. Monday night, areas of frost, otherwise partly cloudy, low around 33. Again, nothing to be concerned about. I feel like I have to say that because people see frost in the forecast and they get all concerned. It's not going to be cold enough to do any injury at this point. Tuesday, areas of frost, otherwise mostly sunny with a high near 52. Let's see what the extended discussion Sunday through Wednesday. Lingering showers possible Sunday, mainly over the mountains. Locally gusty northerly wind possible Sunday in the Central Valley. Drier weather Sunday night into Monday as the shortwave upper ridging moves through Monday morning. Low temperatures look to be near to below freezing in the Central Valley as drier, colder air mass settles over the area so it's pulling in some cold air behind it so not much rain for us but a brief cold period clear still conditions mean we'll get down close to freezing a couple mornings early next week don i've got some questions for you and that has to do with wind and weather and storms and that sort of thing (laughs) if we have no storms coming through we still get a delta breeze i'm assuming that's because the air from the ocean is moving in to the valley. Mm -hmm. Now, 
I know that if you're in the mountains, you've got this uphill, downhill thing, depending on whether it's morning or evening. Do we have a backflow? And the, the Delta breeze comes in in the evening. Now, do we have an, a, a flow the other direction in the morning? Well, when uh, in the morning, what we get is very still late at night. People who ride bicycles and like to go out early in the day will tell me that they hit almost no headwind when they go out at sunrise uh, because the air mass from the land is dominating rather than the ocean. And then the ocean air starts pushing in. Now, we have a pattern here in the wintertime where it's a winter storm coming in off the ocean, then dry air off the land. Winter storm, dry air. Ridge building blocks the storms to the north or south of us, and we get those clear, still nights that are more likely to have frost. So it's not really actually true that we get delta breeze every night very commonly. If they say wind is out of the north, that's not off the ocean. If you see ridge in the forecast, that means sunny and clear. Otherwise, it's an air mass that might rain on us or might not, depending on whether it's winter or summer, I guess is the way to look at it. It's a cyclonic pattern, and we often get the tail of it. Sometimes the whole thing hits us. Sometimes it goes north of us. Sometimes it goes south of us. And if it goes right over it, remember last year? This date last year, we were in the middle of 13 atmospheric rivers, each one of which hit somewhere in the state or further north. <laughs> Where it hit, they got tons of rain. On the tail of it, the bottom or the top, typically the bottom, you got showers or a lot of rain, but intermittent. And that was the key last year. It seemed like every part of the state got one atmospheric river. First, it was Southern California. Santa Cruz got walloped like three times with its right hit right on Santa Cruz. The pattern of the storms we see here typically is that they come in right onto the north coast, north coast of California. Uh, Mendocino, Fort Bragg, and North Eureka, Crescent City gets substantially more rainfall typically than we do. And then they go up rapidly because the coast range is a new young mountain range. So they the clouds rapidly elevate, which squeezes a lot of moisture out of them, which is why wine country and especially places further north along the coast range get way more rain than us, only 60 miles inland from there. So the mm -hmm. pattern of these most recent storms, for example, and this is pretty typical, they'll come in and Fort Bragg is getting rain. And then up in Napa, Sonoma, they'll get an inch and a half, two inches of rainfall and as it passes over the coast range and starts to drop down into the valley of Vacaville, which is or winters will get an inch, inch and a quarter. Davis, another 20 miles inland, only gets three quarters of an inch. Sacramento, half an inch. Scoots across the valley, starts to go up the Sierra, which is a more gradual incline. And each point as it goes up gets more rainfall until, of course, it gets to the snow level, whatever that is for that particular storm. So the pattern is northwest towards the state, hits the mountain range, rapid elevation, squeezes the moisture out, and then the rain shadow where there's less rainfall, which is always the case with a mountain range, is the backside. And that's why Davis will show three quarters of an inch when St. Helena, which is only an hour away, an inch and a half or two inches. And so that's the actual pattern we get. Sometimes they're coming out of the Gulf of Alaska, so they're cold this week. Sometimes they're coming right off the mid-Pacific, so they're warm last week. So we actually had zero chilling hours. Remember chilling hours where we're talking about yeah. 32 to 45 degrees for five or six days in late December, we had zero chilling hours because there were no hours in any of those days below 45 degrees. Yesterday, oh. we barely, yesterday, we barely broke 50 degrees because that storm was coming in off the North Pacific, off the, coming down from the Gulf of Alaska, basically. So significant temperature difference. And last year, here's an interesting chilling hours digression. We had five or six days in which we had 24 chilling hours in 24 hours. Remembering mm -hmm. that chilling hours as measured in the old fashioned method 
our temperature is between 32 and 45 degrees. We had several days where the temperature never got above 45 or below 32 all day, 24 hours. It's not unheard of, but to have several days like that, that's a cold winter by our standards. This year that's happened, I don't think it's even happened once. So just for the record, for those of you monitoring chilling hours, we were doing fine. We've fallen behind, we're catching up again. I'm not concerned about it, but that was those two storms. One of them came off the mid Pacific, one came up in off the North Pacific, 10 degree temperature difference. Yesterday was really cold when it was raining. I was out walking around doing a consultation, it was cold. A week before, I we had, as usual in Davis, guys in shirt sleeves and shorts. Now, that happens in Davis all the time, but there was a larger percentage of them walking around in shorts and T-shirts and flip-flops, sort of the Davis you know, uniform uh, for some of these guys. But uh, there were more of them than usual, shall we say, back in that Hawaiian rainstorm we were enjoying a week ago. I hope that answered your question. It's way further afield than I meant to go on this topic, but there's a little city. We talked about it several years ago all the time because I had fun with it. It's not even a city. It's a postal designated spot on the map called Venado or Venado, V-E-N-A-D-O. They will, they're right where those north storms hit. They will get 10 inches of rain in a storm. Unbelievable storm totals. They were famously reported in the Bay Area weather for weather reports all the time because of the extremely high rainfall because of where they happen to be with respect to how the storms go up very rapidly in that part of the coast range. They'd get 10 inches. Marin, Marin Headlands, if you know that area at all, these last storms have given them two, three, four inches when we're getting a half inch to an inch. So the rainfall on Mount Tam and places like that can be quite high compared to what we get in the flat, boring part of the valley. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank, thank you, Don, for that very <laughs> thorough answer to my question. KDRT is we'll community talk. radio. We rely on <laughs> listeners like you to send contributions to keep this informative information heading your way. If you like what you hear, if you like the Davis Garden Show or That's Life or Jazz After Dark or all the other cool programming here at KDRT, head on over to kdrt.org and click on the support button and you can send us money any time of year. We do love it when you do it during our fun drives and I'm happy to report that our fund drive yielded results 25% above our goals. Isn't that cool? That's people really, People really, really responded well. There's a lot of great programming over there. Most of what I see is music, but there are some really cool public affairs shows. That's our, our, our term for anything that isn't music. Ion Sports is a talk radio show focused on local sports in the Sacramento Davis area. Occasionally covers national sports. The hosts, Chuck and Cody, have been involved with sports both nationally and locally for more than 15 years and want to share their opinions and initiate discussion to the public through conversation and occasional outside interviews. This show will not be politically driven in any way. The conversation will cover the results, <laughs> local impact, business and psychology of sports. Their goal is to create a lighthearted, focused conversation on everything sports related. Ion Sports broadcasts live Thursday, 6 to 7 p.m. Any of the rebroadcasts of any of the programs here at KDRT can be found on the schedule guide. We got a note from our friend Patricia Carpenter. She's having one of her open garden rambles. I think you have that in front of you there, Lois. I do, but you know, my very first question to you, Don, is what does CNPS stand for? California Native Plant Society. Oh, so it's a club that anybody could join. Oh, yes. And they're very active on Facebook. And there are chapters, Sacramento Valley chapter. There's actually a new Yolo Calusa chapter, of the Native Plant Ooh. Society, which is even more specific to our little side of the valley here. But the Sacramento chapter, uh, CNPS, I believe is who she's working with. Go ahead and pull that up. So it says CNPS Garden Ambassador Seasonal Garden Visit. That's the 
the title. So apparently they do this frequently. Uh, Sunday, January 28th, 11 a.m. to 3 p.m., rain or shine, you can come on Patricia Carpenter's Seasonal Winter Ramble. And so you are invited to enjoy her native garden on a typical cold winter day, hopefully without rain. The garden, a secluded one acre wild escape on the slough, is located west of Davis. Started in 2005, it now features about 400 species and cultivars of California native plants. She does these garden rambles seasonally, six or well, five or six times a year at least. And you might wonder. Going and looking at native plants in January, will anything be blooming? Some things will be blooming. And also you'll see the new growth on a lot of plants, the growth habit on the deciduous things. Patricia is a wealth of information about how to manage these plants or not, depending on the appropriate behavior around them. And you'll see a lot of seedlings coming up. And I think it's rather important to know which of those are good seedlings and which of them are not native, at least. Let's put it that way. Right now, blooming in my native, uh, my among my native plants on my farm, Ribes malvasium is a chaparral current, obviously not native here in the Sacramento Valley. It's from the chaparral region. It always starts blooming for me in December, blooming December, January. And since there's not much blooming out there in December, January for the hummingbirds, they love this plant. All the ribes are big, big attractors to hummingbirds. And that particular one, ribes malvasium, there's a cultivar, which is what I have, but there's it's a, a Southern California chaparral native current blooming in December. So some things do bloom among the native plants year round. I'll say also blue, uh, not blooming, but giving spectacular color among my native plants are my yellow berried and red berried toyons. I have both the Davis mm-hmm. gold cultivar and the regular seedling red. They're side by side. They're absolutely beautiful this winter for whatever reason, very heavy crops on them. I don't see a lot of birds eating berries of that size. It's a fairly large-ish berry. It's about like a cantha. Yeah, but you do have birds eating them. The robins love them. The cedar wax wings will come in a whole flock to a to a nice big bush, something like that. Yeah. So there are there are birds, mockingbirds even. Uh, the bigger, bigger I haven't bird. ever seen scrub jays on them, but I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, yeah. they'll eat anything. And they they also make great cover. I mean, this is mine. My mine happened to be near a redbud and some non-native plants. That is a great big overgrown area. I like to plant thickets here and there on my farm for the various forms of wildlife. And you walk by the toyons, and the little birds just go zooming into them. I mean, they're they're hiding in there because it's great cover. Toyons, in my opinion, if you're in the Sacramento Valley and you're looking for a, wo- a native woody plant to grow here, there are very few woody natives in our area. That's an important point. Go to calscape.org, go to places even like select tree to see which trees would be native here. Very, very few. We're a valley grassland plant community. And as such, with our denser soils that hold moisture and hold nutrients, many native shrubs grow really fast and then fall apart and die. Ceanothus, Fremontodendron, things like that. It's very difficult to manage the irrigation because frequently it's late season rains that cause the problem. Well, you know, the one that's never been a problem for me, Toyon. It seems to be resistant to Phytophthora. It grows very well here. You can water it or not. And that's a big issue with some of the California natives. There's just one, it and coyote bush are probably two of the most adaptable woody California natives that don't happen to be native in the valley, but do well in the valley. And that's a challenge challenging conversation we have to have with a lot of people. Well, if you want to learn more about natives that do well, don't do well, Patricia's Garden is a great place to go. As noted, she has dozens and dozens of species there, and you can see how they're doing and how she irrigates. And my, keep in mind, she has a slope, okay? Yeah. She has a slope on her property. 
for those of you outside this area, you don't know how rare that is. <laughs> we don't, most of us don't have even a half a foot drop from one end of our property to the other. So that slope makes a big difference, probably in terms of drainage and excess rain moisture draining away from the crown. So that would be an important point, you know, data point for those of you considering these things for your own yard. And for any native you're considering for your own yard, elevate them to recreate that coast range slope they might naturally have in their own habitat compared to what we have here in the Sacramento Valley. And that's one of the reasons you'll hear people talk about swales. Mm -hmm. Swales are just uh, elongated bumps. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, no, you know, you can make a little mound, yeah. but if the mound is longer than it is wide, well, then it becomes a swale. Elevating them so water never stands around the crown. Particularly, okay. interestingly, the, the issue we're concerned about with a lot of these woody natives is water standing around the crown in the summer, excess irrigation during the time when Phytophthora would be likely to attack. But it can happen if there's constant drainage problems in the late winter as well. It's important to note because we're all focused on drought here in the valley. We have flood years as often as we have drought years. And flood years, <laughs> means in many cases, uh, at least within the last few that I was just looking back at my records of rainfall into May. And we have rainfall into May, you can't control that. You can control your irrigation in the summer, and that's really important to do, water deeply and infrequently. But in 2017 and 2019, we had a lot of rainfall in April and May. And I was doing one consultation after another, looking at native and non-native plants that were getting Phytophthora crown rot because of moisture that had happened by nature. So this is a problem with some of these woody plants. Yes, you can control the summer irrigation. That's very important that you do so, but we may have a problem with winter rainfall. Flood years happen and there's something we need to be aware of. If the water just drains away, that can take care of the problem. Okay, we had some great notes in the mailbag. So, no, wait, wait, before we do that, on the flyer, which see, I got to see the flyer for the announcing this, this event with Patricia, on there, there were mushrooms. Ah. And so I think that if you go out to this event, you'll be able to talk to Patricia about mushrooms because they wouldn't put them on the flyer if they weren't something that was around yeah we tend so. to get a lot of mushrooms popping up after warm rain guess what we yeah. had a week ago warm yeah. rain so that's so perfect we actually, fungus weather we had the uh, a question from Dana saying i was wondering if there's any concern regarding the mushrooms that pop up so much during soggy times of year like right now are they a sign of a healthy garden or not i assume they're poisonous to our pets but not all of them here is what i am seeing in my yard and she sent a couple of pictures yeah so um, I will I will address the first part um, there. Yes, they're a sign of a healthy yard. Their they're mycelia require decomposing organic material in most cases. So it tells you they're part of the process of breaking down decaying stuff. And that's all perfectly healthy. Mushrooms you see in your garden in almost every case I can think of, few exceptions which I won't bother with, are, are harmless or actually beneficial. They're, they're helping to decay stuff and they're just part of the whole cycle of leaves breaking down, roots breaking down and so forth. Wood chips that happen to have gotten incorporated, they can live on almost any cellulose substrate. As to whether they're toxic to your pets, well, I'm gonna say this as it was said to me by a mycologist, probably not, but don't count on it. <laughs> so most of them are not harmful, but if you've got a small dog, you know, toxicity is a matter of, of a degree. And so if you've got a small dog, a the best answer is the one that I suggested to a gentleman in El Macero, which is a gated community that has a golf course. Take your nine iron out and chip it over into the neighbor's yard. <laughs> so well, you know, the easy or the way back of your yard or something like that. They will break down within about 24 hours. So you know, the really easy way is just step on them, Don. You I mean, do the, do dog, the dog's going to pick up something that looks like a ball. 
Sure, go stomp but on if it. If it's that just can... smushed into the mud, nothing's yeah, going to. Why, why not practice your, practice your golf swing? Anyway, the the point being, once you detach <laughs> it, detach it from the mycelial root mass, it'll wither away almost overnight. So that's the the main thing. Now, I on my farm get puffballs quite regularly. Puffballs are exciting to watch, but also really bad to inhale. So if you happen to get those, um, and you have kids around, just teach them not to go touch them. Not because they're highly highly toxic, but the spores come out in a cloud and you don't want to be inhaling that or getting it in your eyes uh, but don't be too concerned about mushrooms one don't eat them unless you are a trained mycologist and know exactly what you're doing but two most are not toxic probably is that is that, is that clear <laughs> enough does that make you feel comfortable but overall mushrooms are beneficial and fun all right so looking at our mail we had some very interesting mail this week, a lot of follow-ups of previous things. Um, this one is from Greg, who says, it was interesting to hear Don's experience with citation during the December 14th show. It aligns with mine. So I riffed off the comments to write a post about citation, and I thought I would share that with you. And then he has a link to gregalder.com, mm -hmm. which is where his blog is. Yep. And so... Uh, I went there and it's the blog's called the yard posts. And so his December 29th thing says citation rootstock for stone fruit trees, avoid question mark. So here is what he's saying. I'll be really blunt about this. I'm not a fan of the most common semi-dwarf rootstock that's out there. Citation, said Don Shore, owner of Redwood Barn Nursery. Don was speaking on the December 14th broadcast, which he has a link to. Thank you, Greg. Yeah, um, of the radio show he hosts, the Davis Garden Show. It made me think, do I know anyone who likes <laughs> citation? Everyone I know who grows multiple kinds of stone fruit trees and has had some on citation prefers other rootstocks. What's a rootstock? And then he has a link to a post on what's a rootstock. So then Chuck Ingalls. The first time I heard an unenthusiastic view of citation was in 2017 from Chuck Ingalls. During a talk at the University of California Master Gardener Conference, Chuck mentioned that peach trees on citation don't last long. I registered that comment because I knew that Chuck had a lot of personal experience to draw from. He had grown innumerable fruit trees himself, observed many more, and edited the excellent book, The Home Orchard. Yeah, so let me jump in here. Chuck was, uh, the late Chuck Ingalls was farm advisor in Sacramento. So we're talking about someone who's not only local, he lived in Davis. I had many conversations with Chuck. Um, and we did confer about citation. Look, I don't want people to rush out to every nursery and say, I insist on not getting citation rootstock. Many of the trees I get in, and they'll be arriving this week, will be on citation rootstock because it is very popular. But his comment that they don't last long is reflected in my experience. Part of it is that they simply, in the case of peaches and nectarines, if you get bad leaf curl, they don't recover as quickly as the trees that are on a more vigorous rootstock. So the purpose of citation was to give people a slower growing tree that was easier for them to prune. There's a lot of misconceptions about that. They think it means the tree will stay smaller. No, it just means it grows more slowly. You still have to prune it. And my experience has been it's also not drought tolerant, which is the point I was making last week. I mean, it really gets stressed by drought. But anyway, continue. So it makes the tree sickly. 
And, <laughs> less and vigorous, that, please. Less vigorous. There's lots of people. Vigorous. Yeah, lots of people with citation. Now, here, if you follow the old advice on giving your tree a good nitrogen feeding every spring, which I certainly don't bother with, then you could probably help it to outgrow that lack of vigor to some degree. Uh, it, anyway, you, you can just buy a vigorous one if you can. But they're not. They're, they're you know in his comments on this, and I'll put the link to this on DavisGardenShow.com. Um, some people comment you can't find some varieties on anything other than citation the company that that uses it dave wilson nursery has a lot of them on this and in some cases that's the only way for example i could get them personally level is my preferred rootstock he makes a comment uh, i've grown a few trees on citation in my own yard says greg i've been able to compare to trees on other rootstocks beside them at a spice z nectar plum on citation next to a snow queen nectarine on nemagard the spice z grew more slowly got worse peach leaf curl damage and always took longer to outgrow it that's the thing always took longer to grow out of the peach leaf curl flavor grenade pluot on citation i have one next to a dapple dandy pluot and a flavor king pluot both on my robolin rootstock mine of those two are on level i believe no i think they're on my robolin as well those trees have loads of fruit every year and grow every year the flavor grenade on the other hand had loads of fruit but grew slowly wanted to fruit on small branches rather than develop a scaffold that could hold a real crop. And that's been my exact experience with flavor grenade on citation. So it just, you know, it's not an optimal rootstock, but it has the marketing aspect of naturally slowing down the growth of the tree. So people think it's going to make it easier for them to control it. The size of the tree is controlled by how you train it. Which we've talked about before, which, which of the techniques you use. Whether you do summer pruning, which makes a huge difference, you control the size of the tree. Please don't count on rootstocks to control the size of the tree. So we'll have a link to this article um, in the description of this show on the kdrt.org website, which all of our programs are archived there. And, and there's a little description, so you might see a picture or you might see a link or something. Yeah, right. the com I like the comments, actually. They're fun to read because they're all confirming the same thing we're saying here. Um, you know, there's going to be trees on citation. It's a perfectly acceptable rootstock under some conditions. Don't let it get drought stressed. I have, I have all of my family orchard trees on one long drip line, and I've modified that over the years to uh, add a second line for my apples and pears because they need more frequent watering than all the others. And I may just go ahead and run a branch line of that down to the handful of trees that I have on citation so they get watered half again more often than the trees that are on level or other rootstocks. And it's frustrating to have to do that, but they're definitely, in my experience, specifically with respect to drought, it's not a very drought tolerant rootstock. Anyway, thank you so, for the comment. We appreciate that. We appreciate the link. So I'm going to link right back for you. So, Don, you said you have a one line that goes down for all your, your trees, mm -hmm. irrigation line. And uh, some some trees would like more water than, yeah. than others. Is there any reason why you couldn't just put an extra emitter on that tree? That would give it twice as much water. You can, it? you can increase the output, but what I notice is it's the frequency. And that tells okay. me it has to do with the depth and spread of the roots, which would make sense on a tree that's naturally, on a rootstock that's naturally supposed to stunt or dwarf the tree. Um, so I have found that trees on citation probably need water once a week, whereas trees on level or other rootstocks, I can go 10 to 14 days. So it's mm. not that it, it's the frequency is the issue. Now, I've had that same problem, I should mention, with pears and apples. I did this one long line for all these trees. And way down at the end, unfortunately, was this long row of apples and pears that I have. 
And uh, they clearly weren't going to go two weeks between waterings. Even even 10 days was stretching it for most of those. Now, there's wildly variable rootstocks for apples in particular. So that's one factor right there. And I don't know what rootstocks I have at this point. Many of these trees are 30 years old, but they were clearly stressed. And more to the point, if you get a good set of fruit on your apple or your pear, and we have a heat wave and the plant is drought stressed, this fruit on the exposed to the sun will scorch. Mm. It'll be destroyed because, of course, you don't harvest apples or pears until August, September, October, depending on the variety. And by then, we've usually had a heat wave. I can pretty well count on one extreme heat wave sometime before August. And I found uh, in really hot years like September 2022, drought-stressed trees, the fruit was just destroyed on the west side. So I need I, I tended to find myself running the whole line just for the apples and pears, which just between you and me aren't really worth that. So I ended up watering them separately. All I do is just take a hose out there and give them some separate watering. But I had thought I could run a line for all of my fruit trees and run it at the same duration, same interval, the citation rootstock and the higher water trees need a separate line. And so if you've already got your orchard set up where you have apples and pears and they're getting one line, run that over for your citation rootstock. Seems like a hassle, but it probably make a big difference. Or I do what I do, which is take a hose out there, give some water, extra water to the trees that appear to be needing some extra water. And maybe when you're thinking of planting the trees, if yeah. you know this, if you already heard this show and you know this, then plant those trees so they're the ones closest to the spigot and have a second line, a little sh short stubby line for just those five yes, for them. Yeah, that would be the simplest. I've got people right now sending me notes because it's the start of the bare root fruit tree season. And uh -huh. one of them was, we're thinking of planting 20 trees to make a family orchard. This is a great opportunity to talk about these watering differences before they go in the ground uh -huh. so that you've got one line running weekly for the higher water trees and one line that eventually you can water less often. Just branch it. It's really the easiest thing in the world to do with drip, especially so that mm -hmm. you're, you gradually back off on the frequency with these stone fruits. Uh, it depends on your soil, obviously, folks. So you, you can't necessarily go two weeks between watering where you are, but I can because of the nature of my soil, but not for those shallower rooted or higher water trees. So keep that in mind as you locate your trees. A couple other factors, look at the appearance of the tree. Some of them are beautiful, so they should be a focal point. Conversation with one person, everything on the list was like peach, plum, nectarine. This can all be managed essentially the same in terms of size and pruning, and they want an apricot. Well, that's a lovely tree. Apricots are quite graceful and attractive. They also want to get bigger and have more spread to them. So I said, put that one down at the end. Put it where you'll see it, where its shape and habit will be attractive to you. The others are more like a hedge the way we prune them nowadays. So keep that in mind. Growth habit, water needs, uh, pruning access, that's an important consideration. As you're planting that 20 tree orchard, let's talk about the placement. And also bear in mind that a 20 tree orchard of deciduous trees is a pretty barren place in December, January. So putting a few citrus in there would make it look more attractive in the landscape. They come later, so leave some space for them. So these are the kind of conversations we'll be having day after day over the next month as the deciduous fruit trees come into the nurseries. And there's also the orientation of the rows of the trees and where you put things. So if you've got a tree that's going to be 10 feet tall and next to it a tree that's 20 feet tall, you wouldn't want the 10 foot tall one in the shadow of the 20 foot tall one. 
Correct. Because it wouldn't get enough sun to get good fruit. Yeah, so that, that typically that's another a, thing to think about. And that was a common problem with cherries, for example, because cherry trees, if you let them go, get to be quite tall and will cast shadow on the nearby trees. Now, again, folks, I don't recommend sweet or pie cherries at all in the Sacramento Valley or anywhere else that cherries have been grown as a crop because the spotted wing drosophila is an unmanageable pest that fills the fruit with worms. You can go to redwoodbarn.com and just type in drosophila or spotted wing or something fruit fly. Some of the one of that will get you there. I will tell you why I don't recommend it, but uh, that was an example of one. They would just shoot for the sky and I would go into yards to prune trees when we had a pruning service and the cherries would be 20, 30 feet tall. Yeah, and they're beautiful trees. If you if it weren't for this worm, I would say just grow them for the fun of it. They're beautiful trees that way, but then they, they're like a shade tree at that point. So they're shading the nearby trees. So it's important to consider the placement, spacing, access for pruning, access for picking the fruit, spraying if you're going to do that for, for the species that tend to need it and irrigation. Those are all factors in where they go. But one thing I do wish more people would do is consider some fruit trees as ornamental landscape features that happen to give you nice fruit. Fuyu persimmon is one of the most beautiful trees you can grow. Even if you only eat a half dozen persimmons, it's a very lovely tree, especially when you can allow it to grow to its full potential. Admittedly, you won't be able to reach most of the fruit on your 30-foot-tall persimmon. But the birds will. Because we'll love it. That's right. Pomegranates are a giant shrub that can take the hottest sun in the Sacramento Valley, can dish out. Extreme drought is fine with pomegranates if you're not real concerned about the total yield. I don't know how many pomegranates you ate last year, but a, established, an established tree can produce one to 200 with no problem. And they're kind of a hassle to process. So usually they only need one designated pomegranate fruit grower in a neighborhood. But as an ornamental landscape plant, they bloom late April. They're into May. They've got beautiful red flowers. There's even ornamental ones that don't fruit, which are really pretty. And it's one of the toughest, most drought tolerant, heat tolerant trees you can grow. So keep that in mind. If you, I, at the first house we lived in, we planted a hedge of them on the west side of the house because it was uninsulated to cool the wall. We pruned it like a hedge. We only got 20 or so fruit. That was plenty. Really, that's enough for most oh, people. But you got all those flowers done. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful and it, and it, shaded, it shaded the wall on the most extreme environment, reflected wall on a west-facing exposure. So bear in mind that some of these red barren peach, one of my favorite peaches for fruit, although soft textured, beautiful flowers. I've trained it like a flowering tree because that's really what it is with wonderful fruit as a nice bonus. Put that where you'll see it when it's in bloom. It's hot red pink spectacular and very very easy to grow so keep that in mind as well don't don't just plant a don't silo off your fruit trees necessarily into one part of the yard just have it be an orchard that you don't even look at choose some of them to be where you'll admire them and the apricot trained properly is a lovely little shade tree uh, persimmon is a beautiful landscape tree Weeping be careful, seven. though, not to put them over your sidewalk so you right. don't end up squishing the fruit because yes. um, that can be a real mess. Yeah. And there's also a couple of weirdly weird features like the weeping Santa Rosa plum, which is a Santa Rosa variant that has arching weeping habit. Beautiful mm. tree. Mine lasted 35 years. I was quite surprised it went that long before it finally died out. And it was a lovely tree that produced just as much fruit as a regular Santa Rosa, but it looked like a a small, I won't say weeping willow, but it had that lovely arching weeping habit that they have. It's very pretty. Well, I have a question about that because if it's a plum tree, mm -hmm. um, you're going to get so much fruit on it that it'll break itself if you don't do something. So I always cut back the new growth by half, that would just really get rid of that weeping thought, wouldn't it? Here's a, here's a point. I never did that with that one because it was planted more as a garden feature. 
and it mm -hmm. never was a problem. The net, the hanging nature of the branches seemed to be structurally stable. I never had branches break. Mm -hmm. Set very heavy crops, more than anyone you've you've had a Santa Rosa plum or, yeah. or some kind of heavy producing plum, whatever it is, the one that you have. We're talking several hundred fruit typically. Beautiful mm -hmm. tree. I have pictures of it in full fruit with the branches hanging, but in this case, they're supposed to be hanging. So it doesn't appear. Oh, that sounds like an interesting <laughs> thing then, Don. It's a lovely Good. tree. Yeah. And, and there's there's the weeping mulberries. I mean, there's a lot of very interesting fruit trees out there. That was quite a digression. All right. What's the next well, question? <laughs> so um, since we're talking about fruit with pits in it, I have one from Amy who says, hello, I bought an O. Henry peach from you last spring. And I just went out and saw an oozing wound about a yeah. foot up from the ground. I'll attach a photo. Any idea what we should do? It's oozing enough that there's a puddle at the base of the tree. And she has this, this picture. Thank you for the picture. It looks like it's right exactly on the graft. There's a, yes. a, a knob in the, in the stem. And, oh, this is... This is sad. It is. And this has happened to me many times before we started protecting the trunks on our farm with trunk garden. Now, bear in mind, I'm out in the country and there's orchards around me with trees in various stages of decline. So borers have been a problem for us from the start. And uh, we learned to protect the trunk at the time of planting. Now, trees will ooze anything, any of this. Wait, wait, what does protect the trunk mean? We'll come back to that. Trees will ooze. Okay. They, they drip stuff from mechanical injury, from minor bacterial infection, place where there's a wound, which the graft technically is a wound, they'll often ooze something there. And if you look at it, and that's all that's happening, don't be too worried about it. I like to, wearing a glove, just rub off the drippy, goopy stuff and just monitor it. But this one, something has gotten in under the bark, which tells me that there's a borer that either is or was in there. And that's probably a flathead borer that's tunneled in around and went right at the graft like that and has clearly done... 30 to 50% of the cambium of the plant has been compromised or destroyed by this thing. That plant is going to have difficulty taking up water. It's going to grow more slowly. It will basically be stunted. This has happened to me more than once. So I typically go ahead and rub everything off, bark and all, and see what's going on. And if I see frass, which is caterpillar poop, looks like, like globs of sawdust, basically. If I see that, I know it's still active in there. So I keep rubbing it off until it's completely open. I sometimes even have fun poking around in there with something to see if I can kill it. It looks like a maggot, basically. If you don't find that, they might've been gone, might've been eaten by something. Things do come along and help you out in the garden and, and get in there and take the borers out. Or they just leave and die or whatever and, and don't continue the damage. So I monitor it. But typically the first year of growth after a plant has been compromised that badly right at the graft union, it doesn't grow real well for at least two or three years. Sometimes it heals, sometimes not, but you've kind of lost at least a couple of years of growth. So if it's just one year in the ground, this is a judgment call, but my inclination is to plant another one of that variety at the very least. Sometimes I just replace it. That borer is not gonna fly over to the next tree. It got in there because there was a wound there or because there was sunburn. And so when you see orchards planted in the Sacramento Valley, they are almost always, the young trees are protected with trunk guards. Nowadays, they just send along with the 50,000 trees that are being planted, 50,000 laminated cardboard, white cardboard sleeves that just slip right over or get stapled on to protect the trunk. Personally, I use plastic tree guards that you can buy. They unravel, un unwind, and then you wind them back up around the trunk. And I've left them there for as much as three or four years, which I don't recommend, but at least for the first year or two. And they're white plastic and they reflect the sunlight. So they prevent the sunburn 
that caused the borer to be attracted to the wound in the first place, most likely. You typically find borer entry points on the south or southwest side of the tree, because that's where the winter sun does the sunburn damage. And borers are known to be attracted to wounds and high temperatures. So if you can prevent those wounds, uh, that sunburn, by guarding the trunk with a trunk guard, that's the easy way to go. Or like the old days, go get some interior white latex paint. Gray, gray is fine. Powder blue is fine. If you want designer colors out there, I don't care. As long as they reflect sun, not absorb it, nothing black or dark. Tan, gray, white is what we usually use. Interior white latex, usually thinned out about 50-50 with water. Or some nurseries sell something called tree trunk paint, which is interior white latex. And you can just paint that all the way up to the first branch. And I've done that many, many times. Uh, and it also works to prevent the sunburn. So that's easy if you happen to have some primer in your garage and it's latex paint, not enamel paint, not oil-based, uh, you can go ahead and paint with that. And that's easy enough to do. It's easier to do with a sock than a brush, honestly, I've found over the years because you can just rub it on with an old sock or rag, whereas with a brush, you're splattering it all over you and everywhere else. But other than that, something to prevent the sunburn, which would help to prevent the borers. And uh, in, I'll tell you, with some things like walnuts and pecans, just wrapping the trunk with a trunk guard, I went from 20 to 30% losses to 3% losses in my planting, wow. just by protecting that graft union, because it's very vulnerable in the case of pecans and walnuts, but also all the stone fruits, unfortunately. So I hate to say the answer is to put in a new tree. You can wait, you can be patient, you can see whether it heals, Depends on how patient you are and how you know how much it bothers you to buy another fifty dollar tree a year later. And this this wound looks really horrific. Well, the I mean, goopy so yeah, the, the, the goopy oozing stuff really concerns people. That in and of itself is not. In fact, it tells you that the tree is reacting and, and is trying. Yeah, but it's to the gaping itself. wound yes. that that stuff is in. That's, yeah, that's that's why I like to take the glove and rub off what's there and see what's actually going on. Because if it was just a mechanical injury, like a cut or a damage. You know, weed eater, something like that. That's not great, but it can heal from that pretty readily. But if something is tunneled around in the actual water and nutrient conducting tissue, then you've got a bigger problem. If someone want, has a question, how do they reach us, Don? Davisgardenshow at gmail.com. And pictures are always welcome because it's very useful to see what people are describing. Yeah. So and when if, you if you want to brag, that's a good thing too. Sure. Send us a picture of your properly trained fruit trees. <laughs> we like to post them actual pictures not drawings of the idealized fruit tree but actual pictures this is a this is an issue in pruning season whether we're talking fruit trees or roses grapes in particular things like that you go online you find these beautiful illustrations of the idealized grapevine I've grown them. They don't grow like that in my like yard. Yeah. <laughs> and roses don't do that either, which I think brings And there's up. 3D. They're not two-dimensional. Yeah. They're not flat. Yeah. You know, there's things coming at you. When we would walk into a yard with our pruning crew back when we had a pruning service, I, I we would walk up and say, all right, what's the chainsaw work we have to do first? You know, what this tree does not follow the pattern that it's supposed to. So something's going wrong here. Uh, it, wasn't, it was headed back or it was pruned wrong. So we're going to have to do some major cuts first. They don't ever look like that in the drawings. They they don't look like something you take a mm -hmm. chainsaw to. So mm -hmm. anyway, uh, we've got roses okay. to talk about, among other things. All right. So this next one, <laughs> this is Don's PSA, also known as a rant. Uh, <laughs> Please, so, public service I mean, announcement. 
It's seed catalog season, so it's time for a public service announcement. Don says, evidently my seed buying habit, admittedly pretty serious, leads some algorithms to think I'll be enticed by impossible horticultural curiosities. If your feed looks anything like mine right now, you might be surprised to learn that. There are no blue sunflowers. <laughs> the flowers of the plant you grow from those seeds will not look like that picture ever. Sunflowers? Blue sunflowers? What the oh. heck are you talking about, Don? If you're on Facebook and you buy seeds, this will pop up in your Facebook feed at some point, I'm sure. Um, oh, go ahead. Read the rest of that paragraph, and then we'll come back. Okay, because I thought you were talking about roses. Uh, there are no true blue roses. Mauve, purple, lavender, yes. True blue? No. There are no multicolored or striped roses in exotic hues. Roses are not grown from seed. Well, when you grow roses from seed, you have no idea what the flowers will look like about two years hence when they finally bloom. To get the promised color, you have to grow the plant from a cutting or a budding or grafting it. That's how roses are propagated. Only rose breeders grow roses from seed, from carefully controlled crosses. That's not what you're buying. You're buying random rose seeds. Well, Probably they're rose seeds. Okay, so let's stop there for a minute. The uh, Yeah, some people do grow roses from seed because they're trying to breed new roses and they've taken two particular parents and they've taken pollen from one and put it on the flower of the other, carefully saved the hip that forms, taken the seed out because they're expecting certain outcomes. But even they, with years and years of rose breeding experience, don't know what the flower is going to look like. Now, what we're talking about here are Facebook ads and other social media ads from companies that are selling seeds on the internet. None of them, none of them companies any of us have ever heard of, and they have pictures of flowers that will never happen as far as we can tell in nature. There are, there is no blue pigment in sunflowers, okay? Even with genetic engineering, they probably wouldn't get a blue pigment in sunflowers. And you're not buying any GMO seed online, I can tell you that, because you'd have to sign a whole long list of contractual waivers about purchasing genetically modified seed. They're selling seed of things and promising an outcome. Now with sunflowers, you can sell yellow flowered sunflowers and plant the seed and you'll get yellow flowered sunflowers. But there is no true blue. There's not even a purple sunflower yet and probably won't be because of the color, the pigment range that's available in the genome of sunflowers. Roses in particular, this really bugs me because nobody grows roses from seed. You can't promise someone that the seed they're planting is going to have a particular appearance uh, in the outcome. It's a fun thing to do. If you plant a seed from a rose, a couple of years later, you'll get a flower and you'll see whether you got something interesting. Probably not. Maybe. Could be. Who knows? That is how new rose varieties are bred. But there is no delphinium blue flower in roses. So even if it were a blue rose, bluish rose, it's not going to look like the pictures that they're putting on Facebook. If you want to know what the heck we're talking about, I suggest you go to your computer, you go to Google, and you put in blue roses and search for that. And you will come up with indigo blue as the color for all these things. They're fake, man. Yes, they are. They're either either spray painted (laughs) <laughs> or flowers, or they've been photoshopped. Well, they do dye flowers for the florist industry sometimes, but it's really easy to create the colors that you see in these pictures. Just open it in Photoshop or graphic converter yeah. or something and just turn the color dial. And I've seen ads for blue strawberries. They created those pictures the same way. Uh, there aren't any blue strawberries, just for the record, and there probably never will be. There was an attempt years ago in the 1990s when genetic modification was still not, uh, was was still up and coming and everybody was all excited about its horticultural potential to create a true blue rose. They inserted a blue 
pigment gene into roses somehow. It was a very expensive process. And they came out with a rose that basically looked, if you know your roses at all, sort of like sterling silver. Because it turns out you can't just stick the pigment into the rose and expect that the rose plant, expect the rose plant will express that pigment as you expect it to. They could not get it to turn on, to use the parlance of the time, the blue pigmentation. What they came out with was a lavender mauve rose that looked a lot like sterling silver, which is already on the market. So millions of dollars went into this project that was announced with great fanfare. All of us in the nursery industry looked at it and said, that just looks like the so-called blue roses that are already out there. Not even close to blue. We do call roses blue. Yeah. In That's marketing, using part. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. blue is the holy grail of the of plant breeders in any flower because blue is the rarest color in flowers. And so, if you could get a truly blue rose, wow, that would be an exciting thing. Well, they couldn't do it even by genetic engineering. And of course, that plant was going to be rather expensive to put it mildly, and it wasn't blue. So, if you look up blue roses and you get scroll through these fake pictures, you will come to sterling silver blue nile blue girl angel face um i could think of several others in the lavender mauve purple range those are some of my favorite roses it's a really cool color ain't blue at all i mean if you're looking for one in that color range one of my favorites is lagerfeld uh it's a it's a silvery mauve color super fragrant most of these quote, blue roses, end quote, that are really lavender or mauve are fragrant. So that's one of the nice things about them. Sterling silver was very fragrant, very prone to mildew. So the newer ones are certainly better. But uh, Blue Nile, Blue Girl, Angel Face, they're all out there. You can find pictures of them. I'll say one other thing. It's really hard to photograph roses accurately to their color. Um, so you can get, I've taken pictures of the same variety different times of day, and you wouldn't think they were the same rose, ranging from angel face to even roses like peace. So the temperature makes a difference. The light that's on them makes a difference. There's a lot of different factors, but it ain't going to be blue. I guarantee it. If you go from seed, who knows what you're going to get? So the only thing that bothers me about this is that people are spending money on what are literally clearly fraudulent claims. So I've actually taken, since these pop up in my feed, to reporting them to Facebook as false advertising. It's about the only thing I can do about it. You know, it's kind of funny, I guess, but what if people do grow a rose from seed and they pick a couple of years at it and then the flower isn't the right color? Are you going to go back to that seed company and complain to them two years later? I guarantee they aren't going to be online. One of the funny parts about these is, aside from the pictures, they now have comments. Yeah, comments from you know, Facebook <laughs> listeners. All the comments read just about the same. They all have the same weird syntax and uh, uh, grammatical errors, and they don't. They sound like they were very poorly translated or generated by what we now call artificial intelligence. And of course, they reply to all the comments with, "Yes, it's wonderful. Here's how you buy them. Um, it's all fake. It's all fake." And it does bother me just in the sense that it might disappoint gardeners and turn them off from gardening. Buy your seeds from reputable companies and know that blue. Ain't going to happen in sunflowers or roses. Or if it does, you'll hear about it here. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so in doing the the research ahead of uh, our recording this show, I looked up the four that Don uh, had, had spoken of. And that was Blue Nile, mm -hmm. Blue Girl, Lagerfeld, and Angel Face. And those were the four that he, he really liked. So I looked that up and I went and and if you do this and you go to the images on Google, you'll find beautiful pictures of all these pink and lavender yeah. roses. And look in there for something, some little line that says bluest lilac rose, house, H-O-U-Z-Z. -Z. 
Now, House is a discussion place where you can, you know, do things. And this particular discussion is uh, someone writing about her her love of lavender roses. And she knows they're not really blue, but they're called blue and that's okay. And so she's going and she's talking about all these different things and she has pictures of them and they're beautiful pictures. And the one that really loved, I loved was this one. It says, my first blue blue moon flower didn't have the best color, but I took a picture that exemplifies how much diffuse lighting can create the impression of a bluish tone or direct lighting picks it up as pink. And if you think about it, if you're an artist and you are are painting something that's pink, the shadows of it are lavender. That's just the way color works because pink and gray are lavender. All right. Anyway, so this article is wonderful and she has beautiful pictures and and there's lots of comments and everything. So I encourage you to go look for that bluest lilac rose discussion. It's kind of cool. All and right, are, enough are, on this. And there are purple roses. I mean, this has been a breeding emphasis of the breeders for a while. Ebtide is an example of a floribunda with a real burgundy purple color. Another important factor is that temperature makes a big difference in how flower rose flowers express their color. So people comment right now, iceberg, which is a classic, clean, bright white rose, except when it's really cold and it keeps blooming because it does. They'll be pink. They'll be pale pink, or they'll have pink pigmentation on individual petals. I have pictures of peace and Chicago peace roses that, if I put them side by side, people would be would not believe me that they're the same plant. They are the same flower in some cases, taken at different times of day or at different seasons when we have different temperatures. So the temperature makes a big difference in the expression of colors. It's just that some flowers just don't have the gene you need. I mean, if you want true blue, you grow delphiniums or lobelia or things like that, which actually have and express the blue properly. I have little doubt that if there was a really a market for truly blue roses out there, that these folks that are working on it through genetic engineering or were working on it would have continued their progress and process because they might come up with something closer. But you know, the florist industry can just dye roses and they do that regularly. They can spray paint them and they do that regularly. That's how you get a blue rose in a bouquet. It wasn't created that way by on the plant. Let's put it that way. And you can do that at home. You can take (laughs) white rose, put it in water that you have put blue dye in, and the rose will suck up that water and will you'll see it in the white petals. But it won't be true. It's actually kind of kind of cool. It won't be, and but it's 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 pretty and it shows you the veins in the petals and it is quite nice. I like that that better than spray painted blue. Well, one of the things that bothers me about this is the sites that are selling these are Amazon. Etsy, Walmart are selling these seeds that are fraudulent. And that, you know, it seems like there should be some way to get this information back that I know it seems harmless, right, to sell people fraudulent seeds. Well, no, it isn't. It turns people off on gardening. So my rant, but also <laughs> also just bear in mind, blue is a rare color and it is the holy grail of most plant breeders to get blue into flowers that don't actually have it already. Some of them probably never going to get there. You want blue flowers? Hey, you- petun- petunias, delphiniums, lobelias. We could go through all the truly blue flowers. Uh, but it ain't going to be a rose. <laughs> hey, let's do a blue flower show someday, Don. That would be fun. Tell so, us how to prune roses. It's simple. Rose pruning is easy. When do you do it? Generally, we prune when they're dormant between mid-December and early February. Some pruning can be done other times of year, but that's the main pruning season. Tools, hand pruners, floppers, a narrow saw, and nitrile-coated gloves to protect your hands. One, remove dead stuff. Okay. Two, cut off suckers. Three, open the center. 
Four, remove all except four to six canes. Cut those canes that remain back about by half, more or less. Cut each one to a bud pointing outside, away from the interior, about a quarter inch above the bud. Remove, if you have the patience, and rake up remaining leaves. That's it. Remove dead wood, cut off suckers, open the center, remove all except four to six canes, cut them back about by half, more or less, cut to a bud pointing to the outside. Those are the key things right there. And even that last one doesn't matter all that much. So there's some words in there that we use that have specific meanings, and we should probably define them a little bit. Dormant. Well, the plant is not actively growing. California gardeners know they don't really necessarily go dormant here in California, especially when we've had a warmer winter. They're blooming away in some cases right through the winter. So they don't always get the message to drop their leaves and they continue putting out buds and flowers even into December. And new buds start to push and grow in late January. That isn't too late. Don't worry about it. My pruning tools are a good newly sharpened pair of bypass pruners, not anvil pruners, bypass pruners, the kind that cut like scissors. Felco brand is the best known. There's lots that are very similar to that out there. A narrow folding pruning saw is really important for getting stuff out of the middle, but a keyhole saw works if that's what you happen to have. The idea is that the bushes can be very dense and kind of hard to get into. So that narrow blade is helpful for getting those big stuff out from the inside. Loppers are probably the thing I use the most. They're just long handled pruners. And I use them first, typically just to lop off the stuff that's in the way, lop off the top growth and get it out of the way. And then the gloves that are coated with nitrile resist thorns. If you grasp, grasp slowly where there are thorns, they will bend instead of pushing into your hand. And I've even heard of gardeners using uh, sawzalls and things for removing the old dead wood because rosewood is surprisingly hard. So let's stop there for questions from the audience. It's January. It's a new year. Right. So if you have some topic that you w wish that we would talk about, I mean, for me, I've got a request in for a show on weather. Mm -hmm. That'll be a good one. Uh, but if you've got a topic or you've got a question or you've got a problem or most importantly, if you want to brag or share a, something good that's happening, please write to us. DavisGardenShow at gmail.com is the place and any time is the time. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRT LP 95.7 in Davis, California. 